The following is a podcast where expert practitioners and thought leaders share their insights and advice. A big thank you to all of you out there, our listeners. If you have any feedback, or if you have a topic you'd like to hear about on this podcast, drop me an email at insights at securitycompass.com. Us in IBM Security, as well as every other major cybersecurity vendor on the market, spends an inordinate amount of resources building, maintaining, and supporting integrations with a lot of different tools. There's just a, a lot of proliferation in the cybersecurity industry, a lot of different competing standards, a lot of tools that don't implement standards. And as a result, you know, the, the interchange of data between tools um, has a, a very high level of friction. And, and we actually have data that shows that the, the average enterprise is spending as much energy and um, manpower integrating the tools in their SOC as they are get it, um, doing actual um, defense using those tools. You're listening to the Balancing Act podcast from Security Compass your guide to going fast while staying safe in today's digital world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast of the Balancing Act from Security Compass. I'm your host, Altaz Vellani. Today's conversation is a really interesting one. In my discussions with folks in the industry and in standards working groups, I find that many times organizations are struggling when it comes to security. And part of the problem is we've got tool sprawl, there's a lack of standards, we're not able to bring things together in a manner that, that essentially provides us with insights from all of these tools that we're using in a way that helps decision makers. And based on what I'm seeing, I thought it, it made sense to have a conversation with Jason Kirstead. Uh, Jason is from IBM Security, and he's also the co-chair of Open Cybersecurity Alliance. Jason, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks, Altaz. It's great to be here. So Jason, why don't we sort of kick this off uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up sort of leading OCA and, and kind of what your journey was like? Yeah, certainly. Um, so my role at IBM Security in the, the CTO office, I, I helped lead some of our, our technology direction. And about three years ago, um, you know, we were... Um, build it, you know, investing in some of our next generation platform. And as we were doing that, you know, as, as we normally do, um, we were working with a lot of our business partners on how they could integrate with their products. And, you know, as we were working with some of these partners, it, it became increasingly clear that, you know, us in IBM security, as well as every other major cybersecurity vendor on the market, spends an inordinate amount of resources building, maintaining, and supporting integrations with a lot of different tools. And our clients um, have to deal with this challenge as well. As you mentioned, there, there's just a, a lot of 
proliferation in the cybersecurity industry, a lot of different competing standards, a lot of tools that don't implement standards. And as a result, you know, the, the interchange of data between tools um, has a, a very high level of friction. And, and we actually have data that shows that the, the average enterprise is spending as much energy and um, manpower integrating the tools in their SOC as they are getting, um, doing actual um, defense using those tools um, because it, 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 it's so difficult to send the information and extract the valuable insights. So essentially um, myself and some others um, in, in the space um, decided that, you know, we should try to come together and, and create, you know, promote open standards and interoperability among um, the cybersecurity tool chains. Because there, like a, there's a lot of different standards that exist today from OASIS, from the IETF, from ONUG, groups like the Open Group. But the, the challenge that we saw is that, um, and I've got a lot of theories for why this, this is, by the way, but um, in the cybersecurity industry, these standards, they don't actually tend to work in practice. Um, they're, they're not implemented fully. Even when folks say they support them, they don't interoperate seamlessly. So customers um, don't get a lot of, of value out of these things. And we said, what if there was an organization whose, whose goal and charter was solely to increase interoperability by adopting these standards? And we would do it based on open source and open source principles. Um, so it wasn't just a bunch of people sitting in a back room writing up a whole bunch of specifications and then expecting them to get implemented, it would actually be about writing open source code and libraries to enable the interoperability in the first place and really lower the bar for vendors and clients to implement these, these interoperability um, procedures and, and make the standards work. And that, that's really what led to the, the founding of the Open Cybersecurity Alliance. And, and the mission is really all about making standards actually work using open source software. Hmm, that's interesting. So, so we've got a sense of the mission of the OCA and, and you have a, a really interesting journey to lead you to that. It came out of some pain that you were seeing and, and you've stepped up and you're doing something about this. Thank you so much for, for what you're doing. Uh, and I'm, I'm just wondering, can you talk a little bit about the different work streams within the OCA? What are some of the problems that, that you're tackling? Yeah, so the OCA, um, it's, it's grown from its original founding. When we originally founded it, there were basically two open source projects. And there are now, um, there are now four different open source projects and multiple working groups as well, all under the OCA umbrella. Um, so in terms of projects, um, we have the Stick Shifter project, which was one of the original launch projects. Um, and what it does is it, it allows um, bi-directional translation to and from the Stick's uh, cybersecurity data model from OASIS. Um, and and what, what that then gives you is by, by helping products and, and consumers 
translate data to and from a common data model, in this case, STIX2, you can get all the different products to start to speak the same language. Um, and the, the stick shifter has a whole bunch of different plugin modules to do this bi-directional translation. There's a, a little over 30 that exist today. When we started, there was only a handful and now we're up to over 30. Um, so it, it's, it's growing quite nicely. Um, the second major project that we have is called Kestrel. Kestrel builds on top of stick shifter and allows um, folks to uh, hunt for threats across many different products using a unified um, threat hunting language. Um, so stick shifter is more about the data model translation. Kestrel then adds a whole language on top of it and a runtime based on Jupyter notebooks to let you go and hunt for threats across all of the different 30 plus products that stick shifter supports. And the third major project that we have that started um, in Q4 last year is called PACE. And what it is about is an effort to create a reference implementation for posture assessment. So PACE stands for Posture, Attribute, Collection, and Enumeration. And it, it's all about connecting to endpoints, getting their posture. When I say posture, I mean what software is installed, what vulnerabilities exist, what software builds and materials um, constitute that software, gathering that up and collecting that into a central location that can then be interrogated and, and used in various cybersecurity applications. So there's, there's work in this space that happened in the IETF, and pay, but, but there was never any reference implementation created for all of the, the output of this IETF working group. And PACE is essentially an effort to make some of those um, IETF standards a reality with a, an open source implementation. Mm. Um, you, yeah, go ahead, please. No, no uh, um, just really quickly. So those are the three of the major projects. Um, the fourth project is the, the, the ontology project, which is about creating uh, a unified cybersecurity um, uh, ontology. Um, that one's a little bit more esoteric, uh, but it is an important foundational building block for a lot of things we might want to do in the future. Because again, if folks are speaking different languages with different data models, it becomes really hard to exchange information. And then the two major working groups we have, and the difference between a project and a working group is a working group doesn't yet have any kind of code. There, it's it's a it's a group of like-minded individuals focused on a problem set that may turn into. Um, a project later on. Um, one is around indicators of behavior. So there was a significant um, subset of the community who wanted to focus on how can we model and share indicators of behavior um, using the sticks to 2.1 data format. And, and this becomes more important as folks try to move beyond just indicators of compromise and try to up-level their defenses actually sharing the ways the threat actors go and uh, perpetuate their attacks. And um, the, the second working group is around zero trust and how can we, how can we use some of the OCA um, reference architectures and projects to enable a, a zero trust approach um, uh, to cybersecurity. So those, those are kind of the six major things that we have going on at the OCA right now. Um, and 
you know, it's a it's an open community um, with a well-defined governance process to spin up new working groups and projects. So occasionally, you know, all of these different efforts were brought by different by various members of the OCA um, and said, I want to spin up a working group for X. And if the governing board decided there was enough critical mass, then we will then do that under the OCA umbrella. Um, and the benefits of doing it under OCA is, you know, you get that well-defined governance structure that OASIS has. So everybody participating knows that their intellectual properties um, being protected and it's not going to be a concern with, you know, patent trolls and things like that. Hmm. It's interesting. You, you mentioned OASIS and, and uh, the governance structure. It looks like it's quite extensive. You've got a lot of uh, pretty sizable projects on the go right now. Uh, do you collaborate with other communities uh, like the Linux Foundation, the Open Group, uh, CNCF, any of these other groups? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, I'd say yes and no. Um, so uh, we definitely are open to collaboration with any and all groups. Um, a lot of the work that happens in OCA Ha, you know, just because of the nature of, of who's coming from where is fairly closely tied to other work that's happening at Oasis. So a lot of the work that, um, you know, a lot of the folks have backgrounds in the Sticks 2 um, community from Oasis and the OpenC2 community from Oasis and the Cacao community from Oasis. But there are also, um, for example, I mentioned PACE, um, that it actually has a lot of ties to IETF working groups. Um, we haven't had any real liaisons yet with the, the open group, um, but, the, you know, as I said, there's nothing preventing it. It just hasn't happened yet. Um, in terms of open SSF, um, we, again, don't have any kind of direct uh, liaison relationship, but there is some alignment starting to happen around you know, so I mentioned software bill of materials with respect to the PACE project. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, OpenSSF is very involved in the software bill of materials space um, with respect to SPDX, as well as some of the tooling that's being developed in under the OpenSSF umbrella. Um, so there, there might be a, a future um, linkage there between those, those two groups. Uh, you know, we'll see. Yeah, so there could be this sort of um, convergence of, you know, even though it is currently coming from different perspectives, eventually this stuff can, can there may be points of intersection with the efforts that are taking place. Uh, it's really interesting to hear your thoughts on how this could evolve. Uh, many times when we talk about standards, um, open source, uh, the, the, the question really comes down to the operational side of this. Um, you know, we can, we can talk about things at an abstract level, and it sounds great, but operationally, maybe it's much more difficult. Can you talk a little bit, Jason, about organizations that have been able to adopt the work that is being produced by OCA? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I, you know, I'm not going, I'm gonna be completely honest and, you know, as with any kind of journey um, like this, it, it has been a little bit of a slog. Um, so OCA has been around for um, almost three years now, I believe if I'm counting correctly. And 
you know, we made the excellent choice to start a brand new foundation just at the beginning of a worldwide uh, pandemic. <laughs> and uh, and that, you know, certainly didn't help um, matters with, you know, during COVID, a lot of uh, firms were trying to be more cautious with what they were doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, um, you know, it has been very encouraging, I'd say, over the past 12 months. Um, where we've started to get a lot more momentum around our projects, a lot of interest. Um, so things, you know, I think with efforts like this, it's like you just kind of kind of keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. And eventually you'll start to build some momentum and build some steam. And that's what we're starting to see now. Um, so we are starting to see, you know, customers, you know, not just of not just my customers, but lots of different clients starting to adopt uh, these technologies and are very interested in them. You know, I, I don't want to go into any details specifically, but, you know, we know of, of someone who's starting um, investigating using Kestrel for a portable threat hunting program so that they can go and, you know, when they're doing incident response at all kinds of different locations. You know, if you can kind of imagine the metaphor of the, the, the people dropping in, the SEAL Team 6 dropping in from the helicopter, right? Mm -hmm. um, they come in, they're doing instant response and who knows what technology they're going to encounter at that client site, right? Yeah. Um, and that's where having something like this that can go and connect to and let them do hunt, bring their hunt books. Uh, we, we call them hunt books. Um, this, these structured threat hunts that work across all the different tools to be able to write a bunch of hunt books and create them and then bring them to different um, countries, different companies, different organizations and have them work across. It's, it's really attractive to them. Um, so that, you know, that's kind of, a, it's actually a different use case than the interoperability use case, but you can kind of see how, you know, th there's many different benefits to having common data models and being able to interoperate because it, it just, it helps you do instant response more. It helps communities share information about threat actors more effectively. Um, you know, it's, uh, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but I, I talk to a lot of different clients in my, my day job. And one of the, the most frustrating things to me, Altaz, is that from my viewpoint, we are all fighting the same battles all the time. But often clients don't know that others are fighting the same battle. They think they're doing it. They think they're. They either think they're the only ones trying to build this defense, or because there isn't any kind of an open community with information being shared or ability to share that information effectively, um, they're they're having to go it alone. And I see it time and time and time again, where you know we'll have three. You know we'll be going and talking with clients, and I know for a fact that there's another client that's trying to do this exact same solve for this exact same detection or detect this exact same threat actor that this customer is trying to do. And wouldn't it be great if we were able to collaborate more effectively, right? Because industry-wide, we are burning billions and billions and billions of dollars that don't need to be burnt. 
if you get if you get my drift. Yeah, yeah, and and this in the context of not having enough people to conduct all of this work exactly. from a security standpoint. So it just sort of compounds the problem, right? I mean, exactly. we- Exactly, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, we, we hear nonstop about the cybersecurity skill shortage, which is real, mm-hmm. right? But it is a real problem. But meanwhile, the folks that, the, the skills that we do have, we're not leveraging them effectively because they're being bifurcated across all of these different silos and no one is talking to each other. Yeah, yeah. And therein lies the standardization and the ability to then codify a lot of the common elements, thereby freeing people up to go in and focus on edge cases and and things like that, which are more emergent. And then you sort of create this cycle of detection, and then you come back, you remediate it. and, 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 you know, it's really interesting what you were just talking about. And it kind of, you know, as you were talking, I was sitting there thinking, where is OCA headed in the future? Can you talk a little bit? Uh, you don't need to disclose everything, Jason, but um, you kind of alluded to it a little bit. But you know, where do you where do you kind of see OCA going in the future? Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, so we, you know, we're we're still just at the beginning phases of this. Um, you know, so it's kind of hard to say where do you see OCA going in the future? Because I mean, I'm still feel like we're struggling <laughs> with mm-hmm. today's challenge. So um, I think if we can get decent adoption of some of these tools so that, um, you know, we can up-level the industry and have folks, like you say, focusing on edge cases and collaborating around the common elements um, a lot more effectively, then, you know, where, what we would like to be able to achieve with the OCA at some point, and, and we're, we're quite a ways away from this, but we would like to be able to get to the point where, I, I don't want to say a certification because that, that sounds very heavyweight, but imagine a world where you're going to buy a cybersecurity tool, be it a SIM platform, SOAR platform, threat intelligence, XDR, whatever new buzzword we decide to invent next year mm-hmm. <laughs> in this crazy, crazy industry. Um, imagine if you're going to procure that tool and you say, I want to know if this tool is going to work with my already existing investments. And oh, because I see that it has OCA on the box, I know that it's going to work with my other existing investments. That's where I would like to get someday, um, you know, not necessarily a certification because to me that's very heavyweight, but at least some kind of an attestation where people can say, yes, we are consuming that tool chain. So you know that our stuff is going to work with this other stuff, right? Um, and you're not going to have to spend as you're not going to have to invest the same amount in people as you are in licensing this product just to make it work. Yeah, that's really interesting and very inspiring. Um, you know, maybe when, when people are listening to this podcast, Jason, they might want to jump in and get involved. Can you talk a little bit? Uh, how can people get in touch with you, get involved with the work streams, the projects at OCA? How does that all work? Yeah, so there's a number of different ways that you can get involved, and it, it kind of depends on where in the industry you're coming from. So if you're coming at this from a, a, a customer perspective, 
um, one of the the, mo the most powerful tools in your tool chain is your 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 wallet and your your ability to influence the RFPs, right? So make sure that your vendors understand that support for standards is important to you. Make sure that they understand that, you know, when, you know, it's going to be a factor in procurement, whether or not they actually support standards or if they're just paying lip service to them. Um, because, you know, part of what we're trying to do in the OCA is enable and enhance the, these existing standards and making them work. Um, if you're, if you're either a developer or someone who creates products, or if you're a mature customer who builds your own integrations, um, that's where you know we would love to help you have you uh, come and contribute to these projects or consume some of these projects. So again, you know we're providing all all of these projects already exist, and if you're a vendor, cybersecurity vendor. There is absolutely nothing, and they're all licensed with very liberal, um, you know, business-friendly Apache licenses, I should say. And um, there's nothing stopping you from integrating Kestrel or Stick Shifter or one of these other projects into your product. And all of a sudden, you will immediately get the advantage of these 30-plus and constantly growing um, data connections. And you no longer have to invest all of the manpower to build all of those 30 plus integrations. This is the whole thing we're trying to get to is if we can get more um, folks consuming these projects, then instead of us all building our own integrations all the time. So this, another way I describe this, Altaz, I, I missed it earlier, but if you imagine, so I'm with IBM Security. IBM security, imagine how many partners that we integrate with across our, our portfolio products. Let's just say it's 500, right? So we have 500 different integrations. Now take, say, Cisco. How many do you think Cisco has? They probably have another 500 integrations. Then take, um, you know, a Splunk. How many apps are in the Splunk app store? How many integrations do they have? Well, there's another, you know, seven or 800, you know? take all of these things, add them up across the industry, you've got tens of thousands of integrations, all of which have to be built, maintained, and supported throughout time, right? If instead of everybody building their own one-off integrations to all of these different products, what if we all just built the one integration with the, the, the stick shifter fabric? or the Kestrel fabric, and then everybody could use it, right? We would save so much money across the industry and all of that resource could then be redirected to, as you say, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say edge cases, it's, it's actual business problems, right? Because in building cybersecurity integrations is not moving the needle on combating threat actors. It's just something you have to do, right? Mm -hmm. Because the industry is so bifurcated, it's like a sunk cost. It's not actually improving your value to your customer. It's not helping us defend against the adversary. It's just it's just the cost of doing business. And across the industry, we are all incurring this cost because nobody because we're not working together, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. This has just been an amazing conversation, and we could just 
go on, I think, on, on this. Uh, just to our listeners, you've been listening to a discussion we're having with Jason Kirstead. We're grateful, Jason, for your time today, just to share your insights with all of us. We'd love to have you back again at some point in the future if you're open to it. Thank you as well to all our listeners for taking the time to listen in. Give us your thoughts, your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at Security Compass, and you can also follow us on LinkedIn. With that, I wish you all a safe and wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of their organization. Yeah.